Well, friends, what is it that sustains you? What is it that sustains you? What is it that keeps you alive and well, even at this very moment? What is it that keeps you happy, that keeps you joyful, that, that bolsters your very life? I'm not speaking about the coffee or the cereal that you partake of in the mornings. But I'm asking deeply, what gives you life? Is it your family that invigorates you? Perhaps it is being with your friends. Perhaps it is your career that you find great joy. Perhaps you have a hobby that you love or a house that you cherish or a hobby sport that you so enjoy that gives you life. As we look at the world, we may ask also what sustains it? What sustains the world in which we live? Let's not misunderstand tonight what's going on in the world around us as we look at our culture, the state of the world. So many in our world walking without the hope of Jesus Christ are throwing in the towel and looking for everything that they may find to find joy and purpose and happiness. You know, it was the great prophet Bob Dylan who said, the times they are a-changing. But more accurately today, it seems that the times they are a-raging. This is what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? Against the Lord and against His anointed. And friends, I don't know about you, but as I look at the world around us, it is becoming increasingly evident that the nations are plotting and raging. But they are doing so in vain. Is this how it should be among the very people of God? Is this how it should be among us who claim to be followers of Christ, who are a part of churches that claim to be followers of Christ? What is it that sustains us? You know, the, the uh, Ecclesiastes tells us that there is nothing new under the sun, and that is so true even in our own day. The questioning of the church, of its place, and where it finds life, how it is sustained, what hope it has, is not a new question for God's people. In fact, it is one of the very questions that was at the center of what we remember on this night in the Reformation. See, we often talk about the Reformation or read about the Reformation. We hear that as Baptists or Presbyterians or, or even non-denominational churches or Lutheran churches or Methodist churches that we are Protestants. But very rarely do we ask what even the word Protestant means. Well, to be a Protestant means to protest something. And when we speak of the reformation of the church that happened over 500 years ago, what was it that was being reformed? It's this. I mean, just rewind and imagine yourself 500 years ago gathering together on the Lord's Day to come to sit into a church and a man gets up and he reads to you these words. Adflixit te 
penuria et debt, tibi sibum mana quem ignorabas tu et patres, tui ust ostenderet tibi quod non in solo pane vivat homo sed in omne verbo quad egretur ex ore domini. Now I'm assuming that many of you have no idea what I just read. And the reality for those who followed Jesus 500 years ago is that neither did they. Because what I just read to you was Latin. But as Christians gathered in churches so long ago to hear God's word, they didn't understand Latin either. And so men and women during that time rose up to claim that the gospel that was held out in the scriptures was not being preached, it was not being taught, and it was not being cherished by the people who called themselves the leaders and the authority of God. They rose up and protested. And what exactly were they protesting? They were protesting the very abuse of the authority and the ungodly teaching that was not from the Bible. The leader of that Reformation, as we know, was Martin Luther, who on this night in 1517 made his way to the Wittenberg church and nailed a document that contained 95 points of debate, points of contention between himself and the Roman Catholic church. But in reality, they were not of him, but they were of God's word. The core of the debate centered on this very truth. What does God's word teach us? And how, if we don't even have it in our own language, if it's not preached and taught and the gospel that it contains is not held out, how can people know the truth? So this is what I want us to think about this evening ourselves. Not because I assume that many of you are being lured away by Catholicism, some of you may be, but I don't believe that to be the case for many of us. But the threat is just as dangerous in today's world. Is that we, even we who claim to be followers of Jesus, would be lured away by the world around us. By believing untrue things about God and about His Word and about the Savior that it holds out. And so what I want us to look at is a truth that's given to God's people early on in the Bible that we find really throughout Scripture. And it's what's come to be known as sola scriptura. That is that God's word alone, sola, His, His word alone, is what we need to sustain us in faith and life. As I said, this is a biblical theme, but I want to look at Deuteronomy 8.3, just a single verse with you. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and join me there. Deuteronomy 8.3. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own to a Reformation service, shame on you, but that's okay. We have some there in the pews. Deuteronomy 8.3 is found on page 143. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And friends, let me invite you to stand with me once more out of the honor of reading God's Word. This is the word of the Lord to us tonight from Deuteronomy 8.3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, 
which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Like I said, I want to spend time tonight just looking at the single verse. But really we see three things emerge out of this single verse that I want you to consider with me this evening. And so if you're into taking notes, I'll go ahead and give you the three points of our time together in the Word tonight. Number one, I want us to see the God who humbles. The God who humbles. The second thing I want us to see is the food of folly. The food of folly. And finally, I want us to see the word of life. The word of life. So the God who humbles, the food of folly, and the word of life. And as we look at each of these things from this single verse, my prayer for us, as we consider really the place of God's word in midst of his people, in the midst of his churches, is that we would make our churches, and we pray this for other gospel preaching churches here in the Roanoke Valley, not just the churches that are represented in this room, but all of the churches in this city, in the surrounding counties that preach the gospel. This is our prayer for them, is that they would so center themselves around the word of God, that they would be so ruggedly biblical, Biblical, so radically word-centered that we would be able to weather any drought or any storm that comes upon us in these days. And so let's get back to Deuteronomy 8.3 as we consider the God who humbles. Now the book of Deuteronomy is a book that is actually full of, of what we know as, as five sermons. Five sermons that, that this man Moses is preaching near the end of his life. He comes to this place almost with his toes in the promised land, but he knows that he and his generation will not be going in. They will not inherit the promised land because of their disobedience to God. And so before the next generation enters into the promised land, Moses hands them these five sermons that represents everything that they have been taught by God himself over the last 40 years. He gives it back to them so that they will know, so that they will walk in the truth. And so we find Deuteronomy 8.3 then tucked into the second sermon of Moses. It's, it's a small verse there in the second sermon. Look back at the verse. It says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. What's happening here? What is he referring to? Well, he's referring to a scene that we get back in Exodus 16. That after the people have made their way out of captivity... They have been brought out. They have been rescued to worship. It's the very reason that God has brought them out. He said, let my people go, Pharaoh, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. They've been brought out, leaning upon God for everything. He says, God there humbled them. How did God humble them there in the wilderness? Well, he did it by ridding them of their grumbling and their entitlement. Let me read to us Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This was the very heart disposition of the Israelites 
who had been redeemed and rescued out of the hand of the Egyptians and brought out safely by God Himself. And they find themselves there in the wilderness. And what do they find themselves doing but grumbling? Jesus Himself tells us that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so when we find them grumbling here in Exodus 16, we actually have their hearts revealed to us. And what do their hearts tell us? Well, it gets at the very issue of sin and why God's Word is so essential. It's because God had told them over and over and over again that He would provide for them. And He had. He had given them everything that they needed. He had given them Moses, who was to lead them. He had given them Aaron as the mouthpiece. And He actually told those men what to say every single time. Have you noticed that as you've read through the book of Exodus? That God tells them what to say. He gives them the words. They're His words. And we see there in Egypt that He preserves them. That He keeps them. That He Himself sends these plagues on the Egyptians. Until eventually He passes over those Israelite homes that were covered by the blood of the Lamb. Bringing swift judgment and execution upon the Egyptians. God showing himself that he is the God of life and of death. That he holds them all, whether they acknowledge him or not, in his hand. This is not even to mention the Red Sea. That God is the God of creation himself. And that he is able in his infinite glory and power and might to cause the very waters of a sea to part so that His people would pass through on dry land. And yet here they are, after seeing all of those miraculous signs and wonders in the wilderness, grumbling. Friends, oftentimes we can look back at these Old Testament stories and scoff or think we would never do that. And yet what we find here in this passage is that that reveals to us the deep, sickness of our hearts. Friends, may God humble us that we would not think that we are better or that we would somehow do better than they did because they reveal something that is the problem with every single one of us. And it is the problem of unbelief. It is the problem that began in the very garden itself when the serpent came to Adam. What did he say? Did God really say? Friends, at its core, sin has always been an issue of trusting the very words of God. We find that this complaining and this grumbling festers in our lives because of a lack of belief, a lack of trust in God Himself. And so we see here that God humbled His people, providing them with something unknown, Did you notice there in the verse that He humbled you? Look at who is the active player here and who is the recipient here. That He is the one that humbled you and He let you hunger and He fed you with what? With manna. Now we often miss this, but this word manna actually means what is it? And it defines the very reality of what they experienced. That they had known the bread of Egypt They had known the meat of Egypt, but when God started providing bread from heaven, they had no idea what it was. 
And so they walk out and they find it on the ground in the morning and they say, what is it? And they just go with it. They stick with the name manna. What does it reveal? It reveals that God himself had fed them because he provided something that they could not provide themselves. They could not go out of their tents and call down bread from heaven. And yet there it was every single morning. These frosted flakes of sorts that tasted as sweet as honey to them. That fed them and sustained them and kept them going. So friends, my question for us, even as we consider this God who humbles, is have you been humbled? My prayer has been for this service as we just consider the majesty of God held out in His Word is that we would be humbled. Is that we too would be brought low in seeing how much we need the Lord to sustain us. To realize that in Him and His Word we have all that we need. That He alone provides all that we need. Friends, God allows us to hunger for this very reason so that we long for Him. And I'm not just talking about physical hunger. I'm talking about spiritual hunger. I'm talking about emotional and mental hunger that we feel within us. Has God humbled you this evening? We see throughout the Scriptures that God brings us low so that He may refresh us with His grace. God Himself shows them that He is all that they really need. Don't miss the providence of God here in His Word, but also in your life. As in some ways we're all living out the story of the Exodus and and being in bondage to sin and needing God to send a Passover lamb who would redeem us and bring us out. This is our story And as we are brought out through the redemption of Jesus Christ, how will we be sustained? Mm. Let us look to Jesus, the true bread of life. And with humility, proclaim all of the beauty and the glory of Christ and saying, what is He but a Savior? But then we get to this great temptation. The temptation that they feel and that they fall into is seen in the next part of the verse. Moses here in this sermon, he uses the word know, K-N-O-W, three different times. And it's this word to mean to intimately understand, to intimately have an understanding of. See, see, God's not just intending for them to know what happened. He wants to pull back the curtain and show them why He did what He did. He wants to make them know, literally here it seems in Deuteronomy 8.3, that that God Himself is, is going to peel their eyelids back so that they can really see what was actually happening back in the wilderness when they were grumbling and He provided the manna from heaven. Let me rephrase it this way. Why did God humble them by allowing them to hunger and then feeding them with this unknown bread of heaven? We see that there are two lessons in the last part of this verse here. So let's look at each one of them. The first was to expose the idolatry of their hearts. Or or maybe to be more accurately, to expose the idolatry of their stomachs. Look back at the verse. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Here it is. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
Now I realize these are touchy times, so let me make this clear. When he says man here, he's talking about humanity. He's talking about mankind. He's not just talking about men. Okay? More specifically here, he's talking about the very people of God. That they would not live by bread alone. And this is counterintuitive to what we know. I mean, I'm sure there's some of you that are cynics out there and they're like, no, duh, you don't live by bread alone. You need water and you need shelter. No, that's not the point of what he's saying here. God is actually presenting a larger reality through bread itself. We find in the scriptures that God often does this, that he takes normal everyday items to present us with a larger reality. You can see all of Jesus' parables in that very way. And so what does he want them to see here with this idea of the bread? That man does not live by bread alone. This is what he's actually saying. That God allowed them to hunger and he fed them with the bread of heaven to teach them that bread wasn't what life was all about. That's the lie that they had believed. You remember in that passage I read from Exodus 16? Well, back in Egypt we had everything that we needed. We had these big old pots of meat and we had more bread than we can handle. You've brought us out here to die. And that's the lie that they had believed. They believe that in the wilderness we'll never be able to survive. Friends, this is the tricky nature of our hearts. This is why Jeremiah calls them deceptive. This is why he goes on to say that only the Lord understands our hearts, that we cannot because they are tricky and they seek to deceive us. And how had they deceived God's people then? Into believing that they thought that they knew better, that they knew what they needed to survive, that they themselves could be sufficient. And friends, newsflash, we believe the same thing. We really do. In this world, we believe that we need more bread to live. We believe that the answer to the good life, to the blessed life, is found in our bread. It's found in the world around us. What kind of bread are you trying to live off of? Is there a certain kind of life that you're trying to curate, that you're trying to build for yourself, and you believe that that will sustain you? Is there a certain kind of house that you're putting all of your time and your effort into? Is there a certain kind of job that you believe that if I just have that job, if I could just keep this job, if I could just go up the ladder, then I will be sustained? Do you believe you need more money? You know what's shocking about money? No matter how much you get, you are always going to think you need more. Is there a certain amount of education? We believe that a certain kind of education for our own children will save them. Do we believe that we need just this much freedom and more? That if we do not preserve the freedoms that we have, then life won't be worth living anymore. Do we believe that the way of life for our children is by giving them more parental restrictions or less parental restrictions? That we need to figure out a methodology for saving these kids. We believe that our lives will be great, that our pockets will be full if we don't have to work hard at anything anymore. We believe that true life only happens when we are full up on bread. And it's different things for all of us, but friends, we have to be honest with our hearts this evening. 
Allow God's word to pierce your heart and to divide it and show you where you are looking for bread to fill up on. But friends, don't let me stop there. Because we have not just gathered as individuals tonight, but we have gathered as churches, have we not? We are represent several different churches in this very room. This is not just something that we can struggle with individually, but it's something we struggle with corporately. We believe that if, if we have a certain kind of music, then God's going to sustain our church. That our music is this cool or, or for some of us, this uncool. We may believe that we need certain programs. We may believe that if we don't entertain the children, then they're not going to show up, and then the families are not going to show up. We may, may believe that we have to have this much money as a church, or, or we're not going to be successful. We believe we need a young, charismatic businessman as our leader so that he can help us navigate through the world. We may believe, well, we know what the Bible says, but, but we should really just kind of try to appease the culture on this matter or that. Or they won't come. We need to pursue this thing that the world is taking up. Friends, if it's any indication by the amount of junk mail I receive each and every week addressed to pastors to help my church grow through buying this thing or trying this thing or taking up this curriculum or putting this thing on our building or trying to have this kind of program. The sad reality is that larger Christian world, larger evangelicalism has bought into this very same idea that we can buy success and that we can buy people to be in our church, that we can, just to put it frankly, buy conversions. What kind of bread are we living on? And how are we trying to fill our pockets with as much as possible? You remember what happened to the manna if they tried to take too much. Same thing happens to us. In the end, we look in our pockets and it's just rotten. The breads of this world will rot and they will pass away. There is no hope in this world in putting our stock in the breads that this world provides. And friends, there is a world who would love to sell you nothing more than a bunch of rotten bread. So what is it that we actually need? And that's the main thing God is aiming to teach His people then and now. Look back at the verse one more time. Let me pick up halfway through. That He may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God humbled them, He hungered them, and then He fed them. He first did it to show them the folly of what they were hoping in, but then He wants to show them that their life is actually upheld by His very Word. Friends, this is the deep reality that God's Word itself reveals to us, that it is God's Word that upholds everything. It is God's Word that created everything. We flash back to Genesis 1, and what do we find there? That God said, and it was created. But what do we find later on? That it is not just God's Word that creates, but it is God's Word that makes a new creation, that recreates. 
This is what Paul says in Romans 10, 17. How will they know if they do not hear? And how will they hear unless no one goes? And what are they going to hear? The very words of Christ. That it is His Word that saves and redeems. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 tell us about the sovereign power of the Word of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Friends, if I could just exhort you here, test that verse out. Take up God's word and see if it returns void. Take it up in your morning. Take it up in your evening. Take it up in your parenting. Take it up in your workplace. Take it up in our churches. And let's test the word of God and see if it actually will return void. And I guarantee you the promise is true. It will never return void. It will do the work for which God has sent it out to do. This is the goodness of the Word of God. This is the power of the Word of God. This is what we see Christ Himself doing. Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-4 tells us as much. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Friends, what is holding us right now upon this very planet, in this very room, that is giving breath to your very lungs, but the words of Christ Himself Amen. that He is able to sustain. And so we see as it is held out in this book, that His Word is sufficient because it holds the very power to create and to recreate, to build and to redeem, to establish and to make new. This is exactly what we saw in the Reformation. That as the Word was declared in their native tongue, as it was read and as it was preached and as it was sang and as it was prayed, God began to ignite a fire. And that fire would spread and spread and spread until we all got in this room tonight. We stand on the shoulders of those who took up God's word. And so I just want to consider then for a minute, how much does the word of God mean to you? How much does the word of God actually mean to you. I know that the vast majority of you go to churches that love the Bible and that preach the Bible. That's great and that's wonderful, but I'm not asking your pastor right now. I'm asking you. How much does the Word of God mean to you? Moses has to say this here. God has to reveal this here in Deuteronomy 8.3 because the fight of faith is the fight to believe that God's Word really is what He says it is and that will really do what He says it will do. That God would give them His Word to guide them. This is what we have in the very law of God. This is why we read from Psalm 119 tonight and talks about delighting in the law of God. Some of us need to work on our hearts until our favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus. 
I know half of y'all dropped out of your Bible reading plans this year when you got to February or March because you got to the book of Leviticus. That's our heart delight in the law of God. We want to use that word, verse and we want to talk about the whole Bible. And that's good and that's right. What about the law itself? Have we come to know it enough, to see Christ in it enough, to love it? God gives us His Word to guide us. God called His people then to walk by faith by obeying His Word. And you remember what the people say in Exodus 19.8, All that the Lord has commanded, we will do! I'm sure how many of us have walked an aisle or bowed in some evangelistic service and we've said the same thing only the very next day to, to screw it up. God tells us the same, though, that if we are to abide in Christ, we must start by obeying His Word. Friends, I wonder, how much do you love the Word of God? Personally. When you feel the longings of your heart, the hungers of your heart for more bread, do you run to His Word to be fed? When you feel anger well up, frustration and anxiety swell in your heart, do you run to His Word? When you have to love difficult people, you have to be long-suffering with those who sometimes, frankly, just get on your last nerve, do you run to the Word of God? When you don't know how to help your spouse or your friends or your children when they're struggling through life circumstances, do you run to His Word? Husbands, fathers, do we take up the Word of God with our children and with our wives? To put it frankly, do we demand that we sit down as a family and read the Word of God? And we are going to have nothing less and there is no dessert and there is no fun time until we get in God's Word. So many of us dads wring our hands wondering why our families are in the very state that they're in and yet we have neglected the words of life. Many mothers are pulling their hair out because they do not know how to control their children and they don't know how to help their children with their struggles for sin and all they really have is do better. Is that what God's Word says? No! How seriously do you take up the Word of God? And as churches... As the people of God, we must be Word-centered churches. We must take up the commands of the Word, not the demands of this world. Because we have a world with growing, growing, it's increasing, increasingly demanding that we bow to them. But friends, we submit to one God and we submit to His Word alone. Are we prepared for that? A word-centered church sings word-centered songs. We don't take up frilly songs that mean nothing and just make us all feel good, but we want to take up word-centered songs that hold up deep biblical truths. Word-centered churches, they pray, and they pray a lot to the point where people who come in and they're just what we call carnal Christians, they get really bored and they leave. Word-centered churches affirm godly leaders. 
They don't want businessmen and charismatic guys who could just get things done and make us look cool. They want godly men who know the word. Word-centered churches are marked by unity amidst diversity. So many churches nowadays, hopefully I don't step on any toes here, but might. So many churches today, they all about diversity. We want to grow in diversity. We want to be more diverse in this way, that way, another way. Here's how you grow your church in diversity. Preach the word. Read the word. Sing the word. And God will grow the church. Some reason we have, we have got it in our minds that we are the ones who grow his church, that we are the ones who build the kingdom of God, and we got to do all the work. But Jesus told us in Matthew 16, 18, that the I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we run to his word. We proclaim his word. We make disciples of his word, not just a bunch of decisions and not just a bunch of cards that are filled out. Not just some membership role of people that we haven't seen in 20 or 30 years. No, we make disciples of the Word. And so, Word-centered churches are marked by spiritual growth, not, spiritual, not, not physical numbers. I'm convinced that some of the most godly churches, most Word-centered churches on the Lord's Day only have 10 or 15 people sitting in them. And that's okay, because those people love the Word. And the reason why is because of who the Word holds out. The Word made flesh. The goodness of the Word of God is finally and fully found in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what our Bibles are all about. This is why sola scriptura, scripture alone, is, is, is so essential for the life of our church. It's because of who this Bible holds forth. The one that the Old Testament speaks of. The one that the New Testament tells us of. The one that is held out as the great sacrifice. The one who is held out as the great high priest. The one who is held out as the true prophet. The one who is held out as the everlasting king. The one who is held out as the salvation, the once for all sacrifice, the risen from the dead, Savior, Jesus Christ. This is who our Bible talks about. I love the quote by Lorraine Boatner that Jesus is the only expected person. There's nobody expected Winston Churchill. Nobody expected Napoleon. But Christ was expected. His word told us so. So friends, how are we going to take up the word? How are we going to hold on to it and declare it? Are we going to read it to our children? Are we going to read it to one another? Are we going to encourage one another in it? The word Friends, is the only way true reformation happens because it is the only place where the God who makes all things new reveals himself to us. We must reclaim sola scriptura as churches today, as individuals in our hearts, in our minds, in our gatherings. If we want to see God work, then all we need to do is let his word loose. 
You know, when Martin Luther was put on trial, he was asked a lot of questions. And as he recounted and retold of all that happened during that Reformation, the one thing that he kept coming back to was the Word of God and the place that it had in those days. And this is what he said. He said, in short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, all the popes, all Catholicism, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word, meaning he, he translated it. Otherwise, I did nothing. While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the Pope that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon him. I did nothing. The Word did everything. Friends, may it be so for each one of us. May it be so for our churches as we bind together to see the kingdom of Jesus built here among us in these days. Let me pray. Lord, you are good and you are kind to give us your word. God, we have no wisdom in and of ourselves. We have no might and no power. But God, you tell us that your spirit works through the declaring, the reading, and the absorbing of your word. And so, God, we pray even now as we sing to you the truths in which we have considered this evening. God, we pray and we ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would draw us to repentance in your kindness and that you would reveal to us how we can take up your word with new excitement and vigor and zeal, even this night. 